My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to Invisible Tears. I'm Amanda, co-host of Invisible Tears. Today, we don't have Jane, unfortunately, but we do have a special guest on the episode, my daughter, Aubriana. Hi, Aubriana. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining on. We're going to be covering a cold case, and this is a cold case that we're actually both sort of drawn to. We were both drawn to this cold case, I think, because of her picture, because of the age of the cold case as well. I felt an extreme overwhelming sense of sadness when I looked at her picture. I got the same thing. When I looked at the picture, I got very sad to the point where I was basically crying. Yeah, just overwhelming emotions involved with this case. And now as we've dug in a little bit, there's not a ton of information specific to her out there, but there are quite a bit of articles that have been published about what could have possibly actually happened to her and who is responsible. So that's what we're going to be reviewing today. And so today we're going to be going over the cold case of Luella Blakesley. She's listed on the New Hampshire Department of Justice cold case website. Luella was last seen alive on July 4th, 1969. It's a long time ago. That is. It's before I was even born. Really? Yeah. Now, she had told people that she was going to be going out with her longtime on-again, off-again boyfriend, Robert Breest, that evening. Now, according to Robert Breest, they actually never ended up meeting up. And there aren't any witnesses that actually place him with her on that day either. Important to know. So there's really no proof um, that he was the last person to be seen with her. There's no proof of that. However, that was the last time that she was seen alive by anybody. Now, Luella was a 29-year-old school teacher. She taught at Dairyfield School in Manchester, New Hampshire, which was only about eight miles from where she lived in Hooksit, New Hampshire, a smaller town. She was not found until 29 years later. That's a really long time. It's an extremely long time. I can't even imagine what her family must have gone through during this time. 29 years is a long time to not only not have any answers, but no pieces of the puzzle to get answers. That's true. You know, so after, you know, July 4th and 69 for the next 29 years, her father, her brother, you know, her family members had absolutely no clue what happened to her. 
Mm-hmm. There was a really good article that was written. Her brother was actually interviewed about some information that he had based off of a diary that she wrote. Um, it was a fantastic article. It was written in the union leader, and he really helps paint a little bit of a picture and give some sort of details about Luella and what she was sort of going through at the time, which is really nice. We'll obviously make sure and link everything that we're going over in the description of this episode. So when Luella was found, it was May 9th, 1998. She was found by two joggers that stumbled upon a skull in Hopkinton, New Hampshire. Wouldn't that be like a somewhat public place if joggers are going to that place? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally know what you're saying. It's an odd piece in this article that I pulled off of. I also saw another article or read in another article where it said that she was found in a partially, like it was a partially buried grave. Mm Mm-hmm as well. So it is weird. I don't know the exact location of where she was found, but again, joggers stumbling upon it, it's it's kind of weird. Yeah. And it says that um, joggers just stumbled upon the skull. So this place where it was in Hopkinton, it was approximately 16 miles from where Luella lived. They, of course, called the police. And when the police arrived, that's when they found even more bones. Once all of that was collected by authorities, they were able to identify that those bones all belonged to Luella Blakesley. Now, 29 years, not only is that like devastating for the family, devastating for her friends too, to not know, you know, what happened to her. But now now they get this piece of information, but they're also faced with other challenges too. When you think about this from a solving perspective or from the type of work that the police have to do now, what type of information are you going to receive from 29-year-old Bones? Nothing. Like almost nothing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know that I've heard of medical examiners that do specialize in analyzing bones to try and figure out a more exact cause of death. I know that when earlier in uh, season one, when we actually interviewed John Philbin, he actually said that he had a connection of a, of a person up in Maine that he had utilized in the Connecticut River Valley cases for really good analysis of what happened on the bones because the body was so badly decomposed that it was really hard to determine cause of death um, in that case. So when you think about 29 years That's a really long time, and I'm not sure if they're going to get any sort of information off of those bones except for the person. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Except for the identity. So unfortunately, that was a really long time. So it's no surprise that her cause of death was ruled a homicide of an undetermined type. Again, who's going to be able to actually rule the type of death that she unfortunately succumbed to? Obviously, due to the advanced decay, it was really hard to figure out any sort of circumstances around her death. So really the only thing that the finding of her body actually does is give sort of uh, friends and family confirmation that she she is deceased. Yes, but if I was like a family member, like if I was a mom of someone, I would want to know what happened. Exactly. Like the mystery of it would drive me crazy. I wouldn't even want to know that they're dead at that point. Right. Like I would rather not know. Mm -hmm. Like I think that's even worse. I know. And it's interesting because I know that I've spoken with people before and I mean, it, you can go in so many different directions with this, I guess, until you're put into a situation where you lose a loved one and lose a loved one tragically. And there are so many questions surrounding um, their disappearance or their murder or like a tragic accident that happens to them. Sometimes it is the answers that you need. So the full story about like what exactly happened to them and who is responsible. And sometimes the families 
just want the remains so they can put them to rest. Yeah, that's true. So really all depends on what the friends and family have actually gone through. So when Luella actually disappeared, the person of interest and the person that was actually spoken to was her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Robert Priest. Now, what's interesting as you keep on digging into a little bit about Luella Blakely's story and the story of Robert Priest is you kind of actually start getting a picture of a little bit of a timeline. So Robert Priest is currently incarcerated in the state of Massachusetts for a different murder. So before we talk about the murder that he is incarcerated for, that he claims adamantly that he is not responsible for, let's talk about a little bit of the events leading up to Luella's disappearance. Okay. Yeah. Luella was actually questioned in January of 1969 by authorities about Robert's whereabouts in regards to the disappearance of 11-year-old Deborah Horn. Now, as you see, we're starting to connect a few cases here, and I can't even imagine actually being Luella and actually being questioned about that, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, imagine authorities actually coming to you and interviewing you and actually saying the, the person that you are dating, whether it's on again, off again or not, the person that you are dating, where were they? And you understand that it's part of an investigation of a missing 11-year-old girl. Yep. Red flag. <laughs> totally. What do you mean just red flag? <laughs> That's more than a flag, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big warning right there. Very big. And so we find out a little bit more about Luella based off of an interview that her brother actually did with the union leader. The article is actually titled, Blake's Lee's Coded Diary Revealed a Dark Side of Breast. And Luella's brother actually does a really great job in not divulging too, too much, you know, specific information because he very publicly said, I'm not going to be releasing her diary to the public. It is not for public consumption. Coincidentally enough, Luella actually wrote the diary in both French and English. And that's why it was named, quote, coded. That's a very smart idea. Yeah, it is. It's a really smart idea. And her brother actually said, so he couldn't actually fully even read the diary. He actually had to have one of her friends translate the diary for him. And then he was able to actually make sure and give authorities access to it because there was a lot of information in there. Yeah. The reason, according to Luella's brother, the reason why she actually wrote this diary in code was just in case Robert found it he wouldn't be able to actually fully read it or fully understand what was in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sneaky, sneaky. Sneaky, sneaky, Luella, but good call. Yeah. Very good call. Wasn't the last six months before her disappearance about him? And that's why she had it coded? Yeah. The six months before her disappearance, almost every single entry in her diary was about him. And it really wasn't nice stuff that she was saying in her diary. It was pretty clear that she was actually becoming scared of him. So Luella and Robert, when they first met three years before she disappeared, he actually even told her that he was enrolled at Manchester College studying to become a doctor. But it turned out that he lied to her about that. He was a carpenter and a really, really great one. That's a big red flag too. That is a big red flag too. So even when they first met, it was met with initial lies. Apparently, according to her brother... Luella tried to sever the relationship between her and Robert multiple times, and he just didn't stop. He apparently continued to even pressure her to marry him. 
he proposed to her, she rejected, and he still told people that Luella was his fiance. That's very weird. It is weird. That's another red flag. It's a total red flag. I mean, we're really, really getting into almost, we're really getting into stalker zone. May I just say that this is a bunch of stop signs, red stop signs in front of her, and she is not stopping. She's running right through them. It is roadblocks. <laughs> it's more than stop signs. I think it's roadblocks. Like, yeah. Literally, it, it is a roadblock, uh, some of these things. So she had been trying to actually end this relationship with Robert, um, and it just didn't seem like he was actually leaving her alone. So Luella's brother was stationed in the Air Force in 1969. He had returned home on leave, apparently in May of 1969. And during that visit, Luella had really told him really what was happening. It was very clear to her brother that she was scared, that she really explained that Robert had been stalking her. She even explained that he had allegedly punched a man that she was seen with, too. So physical altercations now. And that Robert was actually playing games with her in regards to her dog, to her German Shepherd. Robert would take the dog from her house without her knowing until she was searching for the dog for hours and then return the dog and tie it up in the yard. That's kind of sick. It is. Now we're getting into mind games. I mean, I am a dog lover through and through. My baby is my baby. Can you even imagine like the mind games that that would actually play on someone? Like that's just cruel. That's mean. He probably wanted her to feel pain. I agree. Like emotional pain. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Without him breaking up with her because in his mind, she was his basically. Right. Yeah, exactly. So there's all of these really big red flags. And and again, this is all coming from, you know, the testimony of of her brother, but also things that were found out in Luella's private diary, right, about what was going on and what was happening. But the one remaining thing that stayed clear to her brother was that she was increasingly actually becoming scared of him. Her brother made sure and note, too, that Luella was actually a world traveler and she loved traveling the globe. She had friends in Europe, the Middle East, and Australia, and he thought that she had been trying to possibly make plans to relocate and get out and sort of get away from him, and and for the reason of getting away from Robert. Yep. Yep. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. Sadly, Luella's father ended up having a heart attack, and Luella's brother was then discharged to be able to take emergency leave from the Air Force because of what was happening. But unfortunately, the discharge didn't actually come until two days after Luella disappeared. Her brother had told her that, you know, don't worry, I'm going to come home. I'm going to be home. I'm going to discharge. I'm going to help take care of dad. And I'm going to help get you out of this situation because he understood how scared she was. Obviously, he just wanted to protect his sister, right? Did he arrive two days later or was he discharged two days later? His discharge came two days too late. So he was discharged July 6th. Okay. So he got a phone call from his father and the state police telling him that Luella, his sister, was missing. And of course, they feared that she was dead. That in and of itself had to have been devastating too. He's actually going on record in this in this article as saying that he just absolutely felt horrible, right? I can't even imagine the feeling that he would have felt when he got this phone call. And he said he knew in his heart 
that his sister was dead. But he felt that maybe there was a 1% chance that she found a way to leave her life in Hookset and Robert behind and disappear. So that 1%, that little piece of hope was sort of there with him. I kind of feel that though, like saying that you're going to protect someone and then all of a sudden them go missing. Yeah. It's, that's heartbreaking. Even like a little thing happening to them. Yeah. And you're saying like, I'm going to protect you. Yeah. Like everything like that. It's like, that's heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. I feel for her. I feel for her brother. I feel for her family. And so another piece that was interesting was state police investigators found newspaper clippings of the Deborah Horn case inside the dresser drawer in Luella's bedroom after her disappearance. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously that definitely arose suspicion with investigators. I mean, stop and think about that for yourself and sort of try and put those pieces together. I can't even imagine, again, I can't even imagine being Luella and being questioned about my boyfriend's whereabouts in January when this little girl went missing. You find the clippings in your dresser, like after she went missing. What do you think about that? I think he could have thought that she was getting too close to it. Yeah. For someone to do that to a person that they care about that much, Mm -hmm. there's something going on. Yeah. Whether that's getting too close to something or... Right. I mean, if you start reading between the lines and think about it, so obviously he had to have known that Luella was questioned about Deborah Horn um, and about his whereabouts. And that happened in January. If Robert found clippings or found something in her bedroom that alluded to the fact of, oh, she's actually paying attention to this Deborah Horn case. Yeah. Is that the reason why Luella disappeared? Possibly. Yeah. And so to put that into perspective, too, so Luella goes missing again, July 4th, 1969. Little 11-year-old Deborah Horn went missing on January 29th, 1969. Deborah's body was found August 10th, 1969. So Deborah Horn and Luella, they lived like a few miles from each other. It was the same small area and small town. So antennas going up there, too, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's go back a little bit to this Robert Breast. Monster. This monster, we'll call him. As we said earlier, he is still incarcerated in Massachusetts for the death of Susan Randall. Susan Randall was bludgeoned to death late February in 1971. She was just 18 years old, and she had also been sexually assaulted before she was murdered. Wasn't it before or after death? They couldn't tell. Yeah. So an interesting piece about Robert Brees' sentencing when he was found guilty of murdering her was that he was convicted of first-degree murder on March 22, 1973, under the New Hampshire's Psychosexual Murder Law, which certifies that a psychosexual murder is one where there's evidence that the offender has committed a sexual assault of the victim before or after death. Interesting fact, too, that he's the first person against whom this law has been used. That's an interesting law. It is. So Robert is convicted of Susan Randall's death and again, currently serving a life sentence. However, he states to this day that he is innocent, that he did not murder her. He also states that he didn't have anything to do with Luella's disappearance as well. Does he say anything about Deborah's? I did not find any quotes where he said anything about Deborah's murder. I did find a little bit of a disturbing article, though, that did 
bring up that Robert Breest is actually trying to appeal and overturn his conviction because of new DNA evidence that was actually found in 2012. So there was blood collected from under Susan Randall's fingernails, and it was actually retested in 2012. And the lab found it contained a second and possibly third man's DNA. How would he get out on that? Great question, Aubriana. So apparently through the trial for Susan Randall, the prosecutor really built a case where it was solely Robert responsible. So this DNA evidence that has come forward, what he's trying to say is that clearly what the prosecutor, like, quote, you know, according to him, fabricated did not happen. And that's the basis on which he was actually convicted. Now, is he going to get off on this? I don't think so. And I actually think that I saw a quote from an attorney that said the same thing. That's kind of just funny. But I mean, the weird thing is, is that you hear about people getting off on technicalities all the time, though. So. Well, don't they have his DNA from that? So in this article, it actually states states that during the trial, the state spent months gathering evidence that would squarely point to Robert Breast and no one else. The night of the murder, Breast had been moving furniture in his white 67 Ford sedan between a house in Manchester and an apartment in Lowell. During this three-week trial that he was on, the state presented evidence that fibers from the victim's coat were found in that Ford, that there were blood stains on his boots, scratches on his hands, and type A blood found underneath Susan Randall's fingernails, the same blood type as Breast. So it doesn't actually specifically state DNA, but the blood type. Blood type. Was there. Yep. Yeah. I think that's enough evidence. Just saying. And this article actually goes on to say, and the state relied on another piece of evidence, a jailhouse confession made to another inmate with a long criminal past. So apparently there's this inmate that's involved. Obviously, you you have to think about credibility here and whether or not that inmate is actually trying to utilize different pieces to their advantage and try to reduce their sentences and, and that sort of thing for cooperation because that type of stuff actually happens all the time. Be a good human so they can get out quicker. Yeah, exactly. Or just cooperate with, with authorities and try and tell them what you think that they want to hear. So That's true. So you can get out sooner. That was another piece of the state's evidence in this trial against Robert Brees for the murder of Susan Randall was this confession from this inmate. But yeah, so the retesting of this blood and with the confirmation of finding other DNA, other male DNA, that is what Robert Brees is relying on to say that he should be let out on a technicality. No, exactly. So while Breast remains held in a Massachusetts prison um, where he was transferred to be closer to family, his wife and children have stayed by his side. So interestingly enough, he's actually married and actually has children. In 1995, Breest was offered parole only if he admitted guilt. That is also interesting as well. Mm-hmm. His attorney is going on record as saying that Robert has never done that and he won't. He said he will never do that uh, because he did not commit the crime. That's so weird. Yeah, it is weird. It kind of makes you think, right? It kind of makes you think. Well, even at that point, I may, even if I was innocent, I may just be like, yeah, yeah, I'm guilty. Get me out of this place. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know. It was an interesting piece. And again, we will put all of the resources in the description of this episode. 
Another interesting tidbit too, and um, for all of you listening, especially since we made the connection sort of between Luella's case and uh, Deborah Horn's case, which we will actually cover in future episodes. I feel that one so much too. Yeah. Is that one of my favorite podcasts, Dark Down East, New England True Crime, Kylie Lowe. If you guys have not listened to her podcast, you need to go check it out. So Kylie's an awesome um, investigative reporter. And she really focuses on cases in the Maine and New England area because uh, that's where she's from. She did an episode about the possible link between Luella and Deborah Horn on her podcast. Again, it's Dark Down East, New England True Crime. You guys should really go check it out if you're interested about the possible link between those two cases too. So after reviewing everything about Luella's case... I'm glad that we did an episode about it to sort of put that overview out there and sort of get it out there and get people understanding, you know, what happened and a little bit more about Luella herself and what may have possibly happened to her. But I don't have a ton of confidence that Luella's case is actually going to end up being solved. Yeah. Unfortunately, unless there's a confession. That's true. If Robert did it, Mm -hmm. I don't think he would ever confess. Exactly. He maintains his innocence in the Susan Randall case to this day, even offered parole. And if he said he was guilt, if he admitted guilt and still didn't do that. So I don't think that there's any sort of confession that will come forward in Luella's case. However, it is an unsolved cold case. And who knows? Maybe somebody out there knows something. Maybe somebody out there listening knows something, knows a detail, knew Luella, knew Robert, knew something. Maybe somebody out there actually observed something happening between the two of them or with one of them and the details sticking out in your mind. And if that is the case, I urge you to utilize the tip form on the Department of Justice cold case website. You can do it anonymously. Sometimes the smallest details help bring a piece to the puzzle to help investigators solve a case. It's clear in this case that there's not going to be any DNA evidence because of how long it was before her body was found. So it's not like DNA is going to be able to um, be utilized to solve this case. So if anybody has anything, please, anonymously or not, utilize that tip form right on the cold case website. Help bring some justice. And so with that being said... Thank you all for listening to this episode. And thank you, Abriana, for reviewing it with me. Of course. I will do it anytime. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree, too, in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you are looking for everyday items, clothes, collectibles, or a gift for that special someone, you can support us further by checking out our retail store, The Frugal Marketplace. We can be found at thefrugalmarketplace.com or search for us on eBay and Poshmark. We hold an online claim sale on Facebook Live every Monday night at 7 p.m. where you can find our latest items for sales or items at a deep discount the links for our products can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button 
if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.